Welcome to Nazarene Open University with Kingdom of the Logos, where we aim to walk with you in service to the dangerous and compelling God who, with the love of all creation, wants to bring nobility to your life. So thank you for joining us. Today we'll be talking about Becoming a Holy People, Part 1. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there are two others with me here in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And Pastor Amanda, would you open us up in prayer as we begin today? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your many blessings, for how you have partnered with your people and are transforming our lives. So give us courage and strength to respond in faithfulness. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 So the chief purpose for all persons, indeed all of creation, all of the heavens and the earth and everything that God has made, is to worship, love, and serve God. Now, oftentimes in our world around us, we've portrayed this as being a very cute and fuzzy thing. But if we're honest, it's not. It's not always cute and fuzzy. Sometimes you look like St. Michael there in Revelation 13 where you've come down and battled the devil and are covered in blood and sweat from slaying that diabolical ancient serpent. Other times you might look like Queen Esther who in the midst of royal robes says, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I was born for a time such as this. If I perish, I perish. Sometimes you look like Nehemiah who leaves his Nice comforts of being a cupbearer to become the, the great governor who is covered in blood and sweat himself. It looks a lot of different things through a lot of different scenarios. But we know that worshiping, loving, and serving God is something to which we are all called. And whether we're someone who's a leader in the church or we're someone who's just wanting to deepen our faith, we should be building up one another as holy people. So, any other opening thoughts on that? Just premise for why we're having this conversation before we get too far along? Pastor Mike? Yeah, I think, you know, one, one of the definitions for love is seek the best for the other without any benefit of, of, of yourself or oneself. So when we, we look at this, uh, you know, loving God and loving uh, our fellow brothers and sisters and all of creation and loving ourselves, it is seeking that best. And so when we, when we do that, we should never confuse love and kindness because even though love is kind, as Paul writes, there is a difference and there is a place where we are seeking the best and kindness is just not a place to, to, for that situation. Sure. Kindness and love are different, similar concepts, but different. And one of the things that is really important about biblical living is being very firm and what is good, true, and beautiful, while also willing to yield on things that are not of eternal importance so that we can pull people along. Mm -hmm. Being able to walk that fine line, and a couple of weeks ago we talked about St. Agnes of Bohemia, who is known for being very strict in her faith, but also very kind and merciful, willing to, to build homes for people and use her finances for all sorts of means. So today we're going to open up our module by talking about two different realities. And then we'll debunk some myths about holiness and really affirm what it means to live and love God and be able to love your neighbor and stand firm with that armor of God. So within the church, and this be the Church of the Nazarene or really anywhere throughout the history of the people of God, there are two different realities when it comes to the question of holiness. In one side, there's the academic side of things where you have your histories where you can look at the holiness movement of say the 19th century in America there's the big ivory tower carefully chosen linguistic avenues which are the academic side of things but then also you have the very practical what do people really live like hmm. what does the church live like for the last 2000 years 
Not just what they wrote down in their books and their doctrines, but what did it actually look like if you were to go meet Mary Magdalene after she learned of the resurrection of the Lord? What about St. Peter after he had been sanctified on the day of, of Pentecost? You, know, you actually go and you look at the real life of people that is holy, and then that sometimes is a little different than what may be written down in a text. Even when, when Paul might write about something, there's the academic application and then there's the real life application. So I do want us to understand that both of these things are very important, mm-hmm. but oftentimes we get lost in the application of, of holiness in the real world around us. And I think this has been a real problem within the Church of the Nazarene, us understanding that holiness is not just a repudiation of sin, it's not just an aversion to sin, but it really is something which says these are the eyes and the ears we need. I love how the associate pastor here at Jolton with me, he defines holiness as being able to fully love God and then fully love your neighbor mm-hmm. in turn. And I would define holiness as you have had your eyes and ears transformed, so you're seeing things and hearing things like God wants you to. You see the problems in the world like God wants you to, and then you also are motivated, quickened, empowered to to live accordingly. Mm. Pastor Amanda, what do you think about all this? Yeah, well, I was just thinking if we're going to give a quick start definition for holiness, um, I, I would communicate that uh, it is us continually being renewed uh, in the image of God, being that which we were created to be. Uh, for those who were part of my credential review board, I was missing the phrase Christ-likeness, so I'll say that now. Sorry, that was a little ordinary. Um, but yes, no, but this is what holiness is. This is what it means to be a holy people. God is holy. You be holy. God is love. Then that means you be love. Um, there's some bad English in that sentence, too, all over the place. But yeah, as we begin this conversation, I think especially for Nazarenes, we get a little gun-shy of this conversation because there does seem to be so m- much minutiae and conversation and debate and we have this academic debate and then the real world debate or, or how the application and we want to pin those two things against each other and it just can seem overwhelming sure and what mm-hmm. we find though really at the heart of this conversation whether we find ourselves in an academic situation or a leadership situation or just simply like you said we we just want to understand what is it that we believe or how What does it look like to live out this life that God has called us towards? The heart of this is to be transformed. And I also like the language of becoming Mm -hmm. because it's not, we're never done. And, And even some Nazarenes would say, well, then we're not done until a glorification. And I would even push back a little bit and say, we're never, never done. We get to spend all of eternity still being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And just to build off that with some scriptural images, you look at Revelation 21 and 22, and I'm so tempted to read all of Revelation 21 and 22, but that's your homework for today. (laughs) There you go. You get this beautiful image of things which are largely restored to something similar to the Garden of Eden, but also there's been a fulfillment past that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you cannot miss from that is that it's alive, completely alive. There's life happening, and it's a real kingdom. There's work to be done. There's affairs to be settled, and God is doing great things. Yeah. So that work does continue. Oh, yes. And and just to make sure that we do understand, there is going to be a lot of people when they come to this conversation who want to have particular words. Yeah. Christ-likeness is certainly an important part oh, of yes. understanding holiness. But even more important than just being able to whip up an incantation is being able to live it, mm-hmm. to be able to show people Christ likeness that says we're not just here to to roll over or be shy about the problems of the world, but we're here to bring the love of Christ to them. Pastor Mike. 
Well, I think uh, earlier when you were talking about the two realities, one being an academic setting or basically a head knowledge, and then the other being, you know, the, the life lived, the practice that's going on. And, and you know, I think the, the great work of Mildred Bangs Wynkoop pointed us to what she calls the credibility gap, where if you have the knowledge and you're, you're talking the talk, are you really walking the walk, so to speak? And I think we see that. And for me, you was asking about, you know, definitions of what does it mean uh, to, to be holy or to be sanctified. You know, I think that is God's work in us so that God can work through us. Mm-hmm. And we can't really sanctify ourselves. It is that work of God. And also, I think it's very, very important to understand that holiness is relational in the sense that it is God's ownership. We give ourselves to God. And any and God is holy by nature, but we are holy by relationship because we belong to God. We've given ourselves to God. We've dedicated ourselves. And so it's a relational process. And the moment that we do not give ourselves to God, there's something broken happening in in that life of holiness. So that that goes right in line with what uh, Dr. Weinkoop had said many years ago. Oh, certainly. And that whole question of the credibility Mm -hmm. of, of one's ability to witness and to evangelize and live a holy life. One of the problems that we've had here in the church, in the Western culture, and really the last few generations and things, is the church has failed to honestly acknowledge her enemies. Mm. And now, being careful about my language here, I didn't say condemning her enemies, but acknowledging that there are things which are against the gospel. We've kind of pretended like that wasn't a, a deal. And in doing that, we've largely lost our credibility because we haven't been actually showing what the gospel looks like, Mm -hmm. affirming this is good. The goodness of God, it is worth pursuing. That image at the end of Revelation, it is worth enduring for. Yes, there will be heavens and earth that melt away, 2 Peter 2 and 3. But the image at the end is, is beyond all comparison. The suffering of this current age, it is not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us, Romans 8.18, but we are to endure. And one of the things which has happened to us is a lot of times is is foul things creep in. And that's where we get to our conversation today about looking at some problems with sin and sin that creeps into our lives and some false notions of what holiness really looks like. Now, before we begin our examination of 10 falsehoods about holiness, which (laughs) all of these are falsehoods, I'm going to go ahead and put my neck down on the chopping block and say (laughs) also all of the repudiations that are given within the the Nazarene module are wrong for the reason is this they're all focused on sin Mm. they're all focused on sin and most of what our conversations about holiness have been especially since I was growing up going through school going through the district stuff it's all been focused on sin but guess what happens if you only talk about sin even if you're saying sin is bad guess what the only thing you're still talking about is sin sin yeah yeah you're still just talking about sin and at some point in time, we have to realize Jesus doesn't come along and sit down the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, hey, this group understood something correct about the resurrection because the Pharisees did. Mm-hmm. They were like, hey, you know, if God is the all-loving God who has order, you know, his laws, they bind together gravity. They bind together the laws of physics and mathematics and music. You know, his justice is going to have to resurrect people to sort out things because his justice has to be as perfect as those things, too. And the, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they're like, well, you know, the law is good enough. God made the law, and it, it was actually holy. Like, you can really live this holy life. 
Jesus doesn't sit down with them and say, okay, you over here have this done well, and over here, you over here have this done well. Let's fuse it all together to some nice new hybrid. But Jesus doesn't do that. He rolls along and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And it's like it's a really short sermon, <laughs> but it's it's completely different than anything the world has. He says, okay, the world wants to see sinners, tax collectors, Samaritans, men, women, firstborn, fifthborn. I see a man called Matthew. And you know what? He needs the call of heaven. He needs the virtue of an eternally loving God to transform him so that he will go along and he'll see others. He'll see some with one name over here, some with another over here. He'll see a child that needs to be restored. He'll see a woman that needs to come and meet God. And and even after I have ascended back into heaven, these people, they will do my work. So any thoughts on this before we get into our repudiation of some <laughs> falsehoods? And, their, and our repudiation of their repudiations? Um, no, and, and I think something I've harped on a lot, so everyone can roll their eyes at me, but... Um, I think this also stems from our fact, as much as we proclaim we believe in prevenient grace, uh, we, we've not been very good at inf- letting it infiltrate every aspect of our theology. Yep. And if we start it fr- in a place of prevenient grace versus starting in a place of sin, then our language of entire sanctification would be a little bit clearer, or I think a whole lot clearer. Um, and we are, because this is um, the heart of what our God is doing is renewing, redeeming, uh, giving us, or yeah, giving us the opportunity to repent and believe. And so this is what we're going to talk about today. And yeah, sin is a part of that conversation. We're not saying sin isn't, but we've got to start from a different starting point. Sure, certainly. Well, when we go back to Genesis, even before you get the fall into sin, you have God making creation. And at the end of each day, God says it is good. The goodness of God, it is a virtue. And we talk about provenient grace. I want us to understand that God has been working that you would have goodness in your life even since before you were born. Like God wants there to be good things in your life. We look there in Second Peter chapter 3, and he reminds people, Peter does. You know, Peter has a lot of faults, but when Peter's preaching a good sermon, he preaches a pretty good sermon. <laughs> he, he's bad when he's bad, but when he's good, he's, he's, he's really great. Good. Peter comes along and says, you know, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow, as some might call it slowness, but he's patient towards you that all of you might come to repentance and that none might be condemned. You read that scripture and I mean, Peter sets it up. He's like, hey, the heavens and the earth are so fallen that even the angels are held in chains in the deep gloom beneath all worlds. It's pretty bad. But God doesn't want any of you to be condemned. He actually wants you to be saved on the day of judgment. And yet when you see that and you realize that provenient grace of God is larger than time, it's, it's larger than anything we can imagine, God really does want you to have that goodness. And the holiness, real holiness is when you say, well, I've been saved. And not only am I saved in acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, but I want to have the Holy Spirit bring me a second work I want to step into a, another stage where I really am living that Christian life that is reflecting Christ. Pastor Mike? Yeah, I, I think just to ride on your coattails there, I think, you know, we have to understand is salvation is past, 
present, and future, that there is that moment when we accept Christ Jesus. But yet there is that present moment that God is still at work in our life. And then we continue to journey in this salvation. And so this brokenness and this reconciliation that God is saving us from, we can't stay and wallow in brokenness. We are called to be a people of God that is being healed and saved. And so I like to, you know, we get that Latin word uh, salvus, which we use as salve, like neosporin. And I like to uh, use the, the expression of like that salve being applied so that we are continually healed and saved and and we journey towards that glorification and I think Pastor Amanda was talking in the uh, pre-show about you know glorification continually working in our life even uh, and you did mention it at the beginning here but yeah you know we continue experiencing this saving and transformation uh, and it's a beautiful thing absolutely all right well let's get to our as we get into this, I want to ask an honest question. Do we really think we're getting into 10 of these things? We shall see. We shall see. <laughs> we shall see. It's a good question. And for those of you watching, we're here to have a, a good, good time. time. We're not here to be stressed. We're here to just... Exactly. This is what Nazarenes we, do for a good time. It may be 15 and it may be 5. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we shall see. Some right. of them overlap. Yes. Some of them overlap. All right. Number one. Okay. Whole Entire sanctification is the destination of the Christian life. So holiness, entire sanctification, Christian perfection is the destination of the Christian life. All right. I'm just going to open up with saying when we look to Revelation 21.5, God himself, Christ, there. When we, we see this new heaven, this new earth, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, their, their goal there will come to this moment of great achievement. Verse 5 says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This newness, this fulfillment, this absolute perfection here, this is a goal. Hmm. This is a goal much higher than just casting some sin over into some eternal torment or something like that. (laughs) God has a massive goal for us. And it is beautiful, Mm. beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All right. But I'll let someone else come in here. Entire sanctification is the destination of the Christian And we're saying that this is a false statement. Yes, this is a false statement. You know, I think, uh, again, I'm going to refer back to uh, Dr. Weinkoop with with Sister Mildred. But, you know, she she said that, you know, she did a lot of missionary work in the eastern uh, uh, part of the world, and their thought press was, uh, thought process was a little different. So we, we, under, we used to have this terminology that we heard often that you don't quite hear so much in our churches, which is the second works of grace. In other words, you're saved, then there's another work of of grace that is, uh, you know, you're sanctified. And so for the Eastern thought, uh, Dr. Weinkoop realized that, you know, that they had trouble with understanding two works of grace because was it not the same work of Jesus going to the cross that mm. saved us and sanctified us? And what she discovered was for many people, especially in the West, we it was more of a psychological matter where we, we needed to be saved from our sins and saved from uh, you know, free from sin and and literally saved from eternal damnation, saved for heaven. But really, truly, there's this next movement of a psychological movement that says you're saved for purpose, for God's purpose, to be God's instrument. And and the Eastern uh, 
uh, people that she was ministering to, they, they understood, well, if we're saved, we're not just saved from something. We're saved for this. This mm-hmm. is our God. And we, you know, we follow him wholeheartedly and we are his instrument. And I think to say that entire sanctification being the goal, it is no longer God that's being the goal. If It, mm-hmm. it can be. It can go down this this place. And so, you know, I think the, the, the opening statement that you had, Dylan, uh, that come out of the module was, you know, to the, the purpose of all people to, yeah, to love live, to and worship. to serve and worship this God uh, that we have. Uh, we just don't do that. But there is this understanding that we are saved for purpose and inst- instrument. And, and uh, uh, it is a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that's the thing that's, that makes me uncomfortable when we're saying this statement is false is because maybe if entire sanctification rightfully understood as being renewed in the image god if you know being holy loved by god and loving god holy to be that which we were created to be to serve god to worship god if that is how we're defining entire sanctification then we could almost get away with saying the statement or we could get away with saying the statement but the problem is we have made entire sanctification this thing when mm-hmm. it is this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, so we can't say this is the goal. And so that's why, like, again, when I read the statement, I was like, wait, that's a false statement? Did, are yeah. they Nazarene? Have, ha, are they sanctified? Have they sung enough choruses or verses of called unto holiness? Like, again, lots of, of facetiousness right there. But it, it, it's because we've reduced it. It yeah. is. And, and, you know, I think, Pastor Amanda, with the... Uh, there's this, you know, kind of meme going around, save, sanctified, and petrified, yeah. where, where you, you know, and I think that's reaching back to this statement here, where if that is your understanding of sanctification is to be free and you just sit in a pew, then you, you've reached a place of stagnant. Mm. Yeah. And, and you, that is not the goal, to be stagnant. Well, sure. And, you know, a rock can be without sin. <laughs> but it, it doesn't do much either. It's not sanctified. It, yeah, it's not sanctified. Well, oh. um, I think those stones that David picked up, and uh, they were probably sanctified. They were probably Provided that exception. All right, but in all, all right. seriousness, though, yeah. another thing that happens here, too, because let's just be honest with one another. We're, we're here to say the quiet part out loud. We as people, we use human language. Human language is not perfect. The Word of God now can weave the heavens and the earth together become fully incarnate in the the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, the second person of the Holy Trinity. But our language is often imperfect, and a lot of times we get really mad o- over one another <laughs> when we're we're all trying to reach the same concept. Mm. Which which I'm one who is big for precise language. Oh, I, I'm very perturbed by the the passive, weak language we have a lot in our modern world and how it's mostly jargon and not real meat. But at the same time, I'm graceful and realize, hey, the purpose of our life isn't just to, to hash out human language to perfection. But even more important than that is, are you actually living that Christ-like love, regardless of how, how you might codify that in, in a side writing here? Now, of course, what we write down is important, but our products are not as important as those of God. And that's, that's simply what I'm trying to get here. Uh, uh tangent but i know you were saying human language in comparison to to the divine revelation but all i could think of was like human language versus animal language and now i'm, I'm stuck in this thought process of trying to figure out how each animal 
would explain entire sanctification because we just we just passed a uh, St. Patrick's Day was Wednesday. We, we did, yes. And that was St. Patrick used the the three leaf clover, and now I'm trying to think how animals would explain entire sanctification. Well, the closest <laughs> we might get might be Balaam with the talking donkey, mm. which may come back up at the end of this program because we're going to do something fun at the very end. So there's a little tease to hang around. <laughs> Let's get on to our next question. All right. Mm-hmm. Entire sanctification, in other words, a life of holiness, mm-hmm. takes away our ability to sin. Now, this is a big one. Mm-hmm. Th- this is a big question. Big question. If we are saved and sanctified, so we're living a holy life, do we still have the ability to sin? Again, we should be talking about more than just sin. Mm-hmm. Do you affirmatively live the the Christian life? The answer is actually no. In other words, your ability to sin is not taken away. Mm. We, we truly believe people backslide. We can see evidence of people who have backslid. And there are people who still have temptations. And Now, this is a bigger theological question that people have because a lot of times people get mad at God and Scripture because they'll say, well, you know, God, I have this temptation in my life, whatever it may be. We all have temptations. And they say, well, God, I accepted you as my Savior. You know, I've been praying for sanctification. But this temptation, it didn't go away. Mm. And you didn't supply me some outlet where I can, you know, satisfy the sin without me being condemned. Therefore, you, God, failed, or Holy Scriptures, you failed me. You know, the Scriptures in God failed me because my sin temptation wasn't taken away or I wasn't given some nice outlet to, to exercise that sin without me being sent to the deep dark beneath all worlds. But in truth, God looks at us. He says, you're fallen creatures. I want to see you overcome. Throughout the New Testament is language of victory, language of conquering. Uh, we are given our freedom, not that we might become you know, tyrants to one another, that we might become slaves to one another and use that freedom to build up one another and overcome the wiles of evil. And oftentimes we we conflate sanctification with one's ability to even be tempted. Hmm. And first of all, that's an impossible standard, saying the quiet part out loud. If that is the case... Even Jesus was tempted. Like, do do we miss that part? Like, every Hmm. gospel, I'm pretty sure every gospel mentions that story. And, and, I mean, Jesus even was tempted more than just those recorded times. I mean, you look in the garden. Yeah. The garden... Jesus, he, he doesn't feel so excited about going so, to the cross. I mean, do we really, are we so arrogant? We think we're more sanctified than Jesus? Like, Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the, I, I mentioned uh, Dr. Wonkate, but I mentioned Dr. Dunning, too, who's done a, a marvelous work there as far as understanding that sin is not a substance. So I think this whole uh, statement, entire sanctification takes away the ability to sin. I think the whole ability to sin means to understand that sin is not a substance. Mm-hmm. If, if it is a substance, then you can remove it. Yeah. But we never eradicate the, the sin is never eradicated, and sin is relational. It's broken relationship, to be honest. But but we're called to be in right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with creation, right relationship with ourselves. And if we are living in that righteousness of Christ Jesus, and it's God's work in us, then there is the understanding that we don't intentionally sin. And that would be what, you know, uh, John Wesley would refer to. There's a difference between, you know, he's talking about intentionally sinning here. You don't do that when you're when you have given yourselves totally to God because yeah. you don't want to intentionally sin. That doesn't mean that you won't sin. 
unintentionally, and to be honest, it is a renewing of the mind each and every moment, fresh, as Paul would write. Hmm. Yep, and giving a quick shout out to Janelle who has joined in in our <laughs> chat. But yeah, uh, well, and I think if we were going to phrase this statement in a way that doesn't keep us in the spiral of sin, it would be to say that entire sanctification does not take away our free will. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's the thing. In yes, like you said, intentional sin. John Wesley said, intentional sin should stop at salvation. Yeah. Like you proclaim Jesus as Lord and has healed you and 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 saved you, you shouldn't keep on making choices to sin. But yeah. yet, even in salvation, even in entire sanctification, you can still make that choice. And so that is something. Again, I think if we're going back to the garden, if we're going back to how we were created, we find even before sin entered the world, even before they picked uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, really the knowledge of the consequences of good and evil, they had free will. And they they had the ability to exercise it. And really, they were exercising that ability of free will even long before they picked the fruit, because every day they chose not to eat the fruit until that point. So sure. it's their free, free will, mm-hmm. and that free will being perfected in love. That is yeah. what entire sanctification is. And they're making holy choices there yes. Absolutely. based upon God. You know, I, I think uh, also good to go along with what uh, Pastor Amanda said, you know, these uh, these choices are something that, that we are called to have that free will and to, to be in that relationship with God to help us make those decisions. And uh, that is filling up the Holy Spirit to help us there. Mm-hmm. So I think to the question of free will, the best commentary on Scripture, like, that I've ever read, and I've read a lot, is Paradise Lost by John Milton, the poem, particularly the 1674 version. John Milton addresses the question of free will, and he says this, I made them sufficient to stand, though free to fall. Mm. It's a simple, poetic line. You were made sufficient to stand, though free to fall. But once Adam and Eve did choose that fall, Mm. you were born with that sin nature. But the whole idea was your free will, it was an opportunity for you to serve God. And when people ask the question, well, did God know that they were going to sin or anything like that? Was God planning on their sin? Well, Paradise Lost resolves that question by saying, my foreknowledge, being God, my foreknowledge had no influence on their fault, on their choice. They made the choice. Whether I foreknew or not didn't make them choose. They, they did that on their own. They were sufficient to stand but chose to fall. But back to something you said earlier, Pastor Mike, just to put that in simpler language, sin is not a substance. And what this really means is sin is a behavior. It's an action you do. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sin is not something you go to Walmart and you pick up, you know, a gallon of sin. Let me go buy, you know, a six pack of, of sin or maybe a cereal box full of it or something like that. We might sin with those things we purchase. And some things might be designed with sin in mind. But at the end of the day, you're not sinning just because another object is sitting somewhere on a shelf somewhere. No, we sin when how we interact with the world is against what God wants us to do in the world around us. Sin is something which comes out of the heart, not just something which is out in the world around us. Now, sin obviously affects the world around us, Mm -hmm. and it leaves an impact. But the sin itself, the real evil, is something which is a behavior. It's an action. It's something that is produced from our own malicious hearts. All righty. Well, you all ready to roll along to our next point here? All right. We do not receive the Holy Spirit fully 
until we are entirely sanctified. Now this again is another false statement. And this one is interesting. Hmm. And I want to step back. Again, this is coming from someone who really likes framing everything around Genesis and Revelation. That's a big important part. (laughs) The bookends. Well, they tell us both where we come from and also where we're going. You know, you you really can't explain why Jesus needs to die for people's sin without first understanding the fall and the magnitude of it. Mm -hmm. But when we look at at the fact that God designed us sufficient to stand, though free to fall, God, the Holy Spirit, was not just something that snapped into existence in response to sin. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit— existed before time as we understood it began. So that being said, the Holy Spirit was fully involved in creation before that day of Pentecost. Meaning, if we just simply say, you know, you don't really have the the fullness of the Holy Spirit till after you've been a sinner and then saved and sanctified, that kind of nullifies the purpose of the Holy Spirit a little bit. That kind of takes the Holy Spirit and says, it's just nothing more than a medicine for us. And I think just starting from that premise is faulty, but that's just my commentary on all this, and I'll let someone else come in. Pastor Mike? You know, I think uh, the problem with this statement is there is this division that it creates that if you're, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit uh, or you're entirely sanctified, then those who have just been saved are not as as you know, valuable, or they're not as holy or whatever, you know, when we get here. The, the, the truth is, you know, that creates division in the church. And so if we look at, uh, say, that, you know, a lot of other denominations, uh, especially more Pentecostal and tongue speakers, you got those who say, you know, they speak in tongues and those who don't. And, and it kind of brings a division, even though say it, they, they try to deny that. But there are those who are filled with the Spirit and those who are not. And it, and it makes an, an impression that some are holier or more Christian than others. Mm. And so we have to we have to be very careful about how we use the language. And to be honest, to be sanctified is to be humble. There is no room for arrogance in that. And to think that you are better, well, that is not that's not the case. It holiness is relational and it is because we belong to God. The the value is not necessarily in ourselves, but the value is in who we belong to. So sure. those who are saved, they find this 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 Holy Spirit in them. And to be honest, I'm not sure if I could be if we are totally, totally full filled with the Holy Spirit, it might just kill us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so where do you where do you say I think this filling of the Holy Spirit and glowing closer and closer to God uh, is, you know, is something that, that continues to work in our life even beyond the glorification in the new body where we continue to be in the presence of God. Yeah. Sure. Well, and I think that's something, an uh, analogy I've heard a lot or a way of communicating that is um, to talk about, like, how we love someone. Like, I 100% with my entire being love my husband, but tomorrow I can still love him more. Oh, definitely can love them less. No, <laughs> sorry, I'm just kidding. Um, but we grow in love, yeah. and I think that's the same thing when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And yes, that there is this point in our lives where we 
respond to the one act of grace of our God, which is uh, the, the ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. And we come to that second point and we say we want a deeper walk, a, a, a more, more of a commitment, an entire setting ourselves apart. But at the same time, that is only a continuation of the fact that we have already received love completely and that we are already loved wholly. It is now our response to that holy love, and you can spell that both ways, and I think it would work. Um, and so that's what it is. The Holy Spirit's already in us and dwells in us. Otherwise, if the Holy Spirit wasn't already at work, then uh, we couldn't even respond in salvation. We couldn't yeah. even respond in asking God. Uh, we wouldn't even have known God if it was not for the Holy Spirit revealing God's self to us through sure. all the means in which God reveals God's self to us. So, yes, no, it is kind of a, a, a funny statement. And yet I have heard so many who were raised in the Nazarene church say this statement with such surety, and they often use it as a, a, a battering ram against other denominations. And, and yeah. that hurts me because I want, I mean, yeah, whether or not you believe in tongue speaking or whether or not you believe in, quote unquote entire sanctification if if you can say the apostles creed and live it like that is holiness yeah that is that holiness. is love yeah. well to, to kind of build off of of a couple of things we've talked about so far mm. because we're having this program here at nazarene open university because mm. we want your life to be built up we want you to have the whole armor of god on why because there is cosmic evil around mm-hmm. it, it, it is of a magnitude which cannot be contained within even our own language. But at the same time, the beauty of God is even so much larger that we should have great courage in our hearts and great joy as we walk towards the good, the true, and the beautiful. One of the things that we've had in a lot of of circles within the church is we've had, rather than the real assertiveness of the gospel, because the gospel is firm, you must contend for it. Nothing good and true happens by accident without a great amount of effort put behind it. But a lot of times, rather than having that real assertiveness, there's a cheap off-brand version of it, which is kind of the fake haughtiness Mm. that pretends to be, you know, I'm here to contend for what is good and true without having that that actual backbone that says, you know what? There are times to turn the table temples over, and it's actually necessary to do that. There are times where you have to cast out the demons into the sea and to perish. Mm -hmm. But you've got to know when to do that, and then you've got to know when to say, we're not throwing any stones today. You've got to know how to walk the fine line between being firm but also meek. And real meekness, we often talk about it being, you know, reserved strength. Meekness, I think, is best understood as a test. You have been given a great power. What are you going to do with it? And you have to acknowledge the enemy. Yeah, you, you got to mention that, you know. Yeah. 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 All right, so we're going to handle the next two falsehoods together because I actually think they're different phrasings of the same thing. Mm. The next two falsehoods we have is that those who are not entirely sanctified are sinners and second-class citizens. And then the second question here, which I think is actually the same idea, just Mm. with different words, is only those who are entirely sanctified go to heaven. Okay. (laughs) I think you can actually resolve all of this with just a few questions. All right. And looking at a few people. Uh, What happens to the thief on the cross? Hmm. Let me ask you all this. Did the thief on the cross even come off to get baptized? No. No. Did the thief on the cross go live a long life where he ministered to others? He he sent people through discipleship groups and all sorts of stuff where he, he lived this 
you know, immaculate life of good role modeling? Mm. No. Did he start his Christian journey young? No. When we look at the, the parable of the talents or say the, the parable of the workers, some begin in the morning, some begin in the evening. Mm-hmm. What happens in the end of those? Does the master come along and say, what would you have done if you had seven talents instead of five? You who had two, how would you have been with a hundred talents? Or you who had one, would you have been able to do more if the one talent you had was one of the men over here with five talents, one of his one? Does that happen? No. No. No, no I think not. And the reason why I say all of this is because God is God. He sits on the throne. Amen. Christ will judge the living and the dead. Yeah, exactly. I think that's where I wanted to go is saying, you know, uh, it, it ultimately the the downfall I see, especially in uh, you know only those who are entirely sanctified go to heaven. There's in some type of implication there that that we are able to judge who is and who isn't, yeah. and that's yeah. God's job to judge. And 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 another thing that I think that does is it places God in a box mm. that says that God has to judge this way, and that's not the case. God is capable beyond what we're ever able to even imagine sometimes. That's not to say that we can't look and look at somebody's lifestyle and say that's sinful lifestyle or we don't approve of that or it doesn't reflect what God has called them to live like. It's not a walk. But it. But I, I think the danger is that we get into a very condemnation of the person rather than, a, than the sinful act. And I, I, I don't know, but, you know, th- God is capable of doing things that I'm I'm not. He as you said earlier, Dylan, you know, the God of the past, the God of the present, God of the, the Holy Spirit has was there. And we are just without the Holy Spirit and the breath of life of God, we're just basically clay that that goes. And so it is that life of God that that we receive. So I believe every breathing human being alive has some uh, you know, ability for God to save, it be even if I don't understand it. And that's where that prevenient grace that Amanda talked about is so important because in the Church of the Nazarene, we understand that God's prevenient grace covers those who are mentally challenged and unable to understand and even accept God, much less give themselves to God. We understand that the that God's prevenient grace covers those children um, you know, and infants who, who may die in the Lord. Um, so you, there's a whole lot that that question really takes away. I mean, that statement takes away. It's not really a question. It's a statement. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, like you said, one, the, these statements are predicated on this idea that we get to decide who's entirely sanctified or not, which is just like, do we really want to play those games? Like, no. Well, yeah. No, we don't. Because no. here's the thing. I'm not Peter or Paul or Lydia or Priscilla. I can't measure up to them. Like you want to talk about like the 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 thief on the cross didn't live this great life of of holiness because he was dead the next day. Um, how about the fact we can't live a life of holiness like the people who were sanctified on the day of Pentecost? Like if we're gonna take a measuring stick to each other, we're gonna find all of us are falling <laughs> phenomenally short. And here's the other thing. You know, you were talking about prevenient grace covering those who cannot make that cognitive decision. Well, salvation's not purely cognitive. No. It is life. Yeah, it is life. And so in whatever measure 
whether we are the the in the parable of the talents, we're the one who only gets two, or the one that gets ten, or whether we're in the parable of the workers, who some start in the morning and some start an hour before quitting time. Wherever we find ourselves in that narrative, we are to just simply respond to the grace given to us. And I think, thanks be to God, we are also called to extend that grace to the people around us. Mm -hmm. And we don't get to decide what measuring stick gets to be used against others. Because oftentimes we like the, the, the long, hard one for everyone else, but the easy one for ourselves. Guess what? God's got... God's got one scripture, which I believe scripture is the one that comes from the language, the etymology is measuring stick, right? Or is that canon? Canon. Canon. The way we, in which we speak about the story of God, God's love, God's unfailing love, the love of God that looked at dumb human beings who continually messed up and said, guess what? I'm going to try again. <laughs> I'm going to keep loving. I've sent you I've sent you the patriarchs and the matriarchs. I've sent you the judges. I've sent you the prophets. I've sent you the kings. I'm going to send you the Messiah. And even after that, I'm going to send you apostles and preachers and teachers and missionaries. It Grace keeps coming. Yeah. And, and you know, just to go uh, on that, the grace of God is is beautiful. It is mm. tremendous. But it, the, And though it's freely offered to us, we have to respond, and when we receive that grace to continue to want to live and to intentionally sin is mm. a place where we mm -hmm. cheapen the grace. Oh, yeah. So there has to be a balance of this and an understanding that we appreciate God, and there is this relationship that it is uh, exactly belonging to God and a relationship with Him. Amen. All righty. Just to add a little bit to that. Okay. Oftentimes in the world around us, we are taught that we are sad things to be pitied. And that's generally how a lot of people navigate the world. You know, like yeah. my car broke down. Like, oh, God, I just wish you would let me go back in, in time three seconds ago, Lord, and not have this nail hit my tire, whatever. But, you know, God wants us to be people who overcome. Mm -hmm. We were created to be beings that overcome, who, who endured the great labor necessary to maintain God's order. Mm -hmm. It was never meant to be something which was easy. It wasn't just a snap of the finger. There was supposed to be work. And we do see throughout Scripture, uh, particularly in Mark chapter 6, you actually see Jesus amazed at people being kind of pitiful and dumb. <laughs> and that's when Jesus is in his own hometown and he's worked these miracles. And the people around him are so pitiful and dumb that Jesus can't even work miracles you know the scripture actually says you know he's not able to do any miracles except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them in mark um six five but we are meant to be people who overcome and holiness is that life that says all right i'm invigorated mm. and that brings us into our next question because it's not just an invigoration against sin where you're still just obsessed with it like did i not sin today mm -hmm. but you're actually affirming mm. have i been reflecting my maker today Hmm. When I had the terrible calamity happen today of being in traffic, and then the car got hot and overheated, did I overcome that well? When I got home and my, my family member lied to me and has been scamming me for years, did I handle that well? Hmm. Now, did you actually rise to the occasion of, of being the, the gospel, which is the most serious and severe thing we could ever imagine, but also the most loving and compassionate? Do we hold that tension between being very firm but also that, that love? Which, again, the love is, is firm. It's, mm. it's, it's truthful but merciful. All right, we're going to take the next two questions as a couplet. Okay. And then we'll be 
getting close to our, our end today. <laughs> so legalistic self-righteousness is what holiness looks like. We're going to couple that to sinliness. Sinless, sinlessness. Sinless? We can say that. Sounds like silliness. Oh, sinlessness. sinlessness. Okay. Sinlessness is the goal of the sanctified life. Okay, so as we look at these two, I'm going to actually posit something that's not the complete answer to this, but a, a side piece to it. Sanity <laughs> is what the holy life looks like. When you look at the church after the day of Pentecost, Peter is not confused. When Ananias and Sapphira come to him, he discerns the truth of their lie. Now, is he able to go before a court and hand out a legal document and be like, well, we know they lied here, 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 and here? No. He's not able to defeat the, the world on the world's terms, but he is able to defeat it on the gospel's terms where he says, this is true. What you did over there was evil. May not be able to explain it to satisfy the world, but I know it's evil. I'm calling it out and we're moving forwards. Mm. When you look throughout the, the early church and really throughout the lives of holy people for the last 2,000 years, those who are sanctified have a very sane life. I mean, there's wild stuff going on in the, the, the Gospels, wild stuff going on in the book of Acts. It's still like, dangerous and entertaining. Yeah. Dangerous and entertaining God indeed. I mean, they got towns where they got children, you know, enslaved and got demons in them that they're selling out. They got people who have like a whole whole town filled of a library of like witchcraft books. I mean, there's insane stuff going on. But the church is never insane. <laughs> the church might be accused of being drunk, but actually their heads are pretty clear. <laughs> People come and lie to them and give false witness against them. They don't even get in the weeds of, of being like, well, I really didn't do this false witness or this lie or this, this, this. They come along and say, Jesus died and rose again. That's an objective fact. You can try to silence me. You can try to cut my tongue out. But that's a fact you're going to have to deal with. Mm. And if you if you let that fact stand, you're going to find it pretty hard to stop his gospel. Yeah. Tr- truth in fact, is, you is can't. part of that. Truth. Yeah. Absolutely. Truth. truth. You know, I think uh, when we look at that statement about uh, self-righteous, it, it, we find our righteousness of the is in the righteousness of Christ. That it mm. is again that relationship. Holiness is relational. I know I've probably said that a hundred times. I can't <laughs> stress that enough. But at the end of the day, I think you know um, legalism. You, you know, we can't just function on legalism. We have to live in the righteousness of Christ and find and find our life based on the principles that Jesus taught. In other words, you can you can if you want to dig hard enough, you can find some type of legalism just about on anything. But it is the principle. Principles like God finds value in every person. And we see Jesus finding value. What does that, you know, you, you apply that and then it helps. Uh, to live this life. All right. Mm-hmm. Any, anybody got any response no, to that? No. Well, I mean, it, I, th- I think you've made it quite clear. And um, again, it, it seems funny as much as we're kind of picking on this this article sometimes of talking about sin so much. It also makes it very clear of the goal, right? It's not sinlessness, but it is love, which will result mm-hmm. in not choosing sin. Um yep. In not being self-righteous, but that is not the primary expression. And 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 I think also, again, as we look to our history, right, and we see kind of what has shaped us, specifically in the American holiness movement, and the things that this movement has tried to combat, 
then we can see why we have been accused of being legalistic. But why did we make those choices? And then why would we maybe today make different choices? Not because we made a bad choice in the past, but because maybe there are different implications. And maybe instead of just flat out making lists, we look into the goal, the, um, what is that? The telos or the ethos? Telos of who we are. Maturity, yeah. We are to be, we are to love. We are created to be loved and to love. That is who we are. That is who we're supposed to be. And so what does that look like? Well, in some instances, it may look differently for each person, how that is lived out. But the goal is still the same. And we cannot find that if we're trying to make these unilateral statements that are so conditioned in one culture of one time in one place. And we have Mm -hmm. to be careful of that. And I mean, oh my goodness, half of our Old Testament in the Pentateuch has a bunch of laws in it we don't even practice anymore. Again, are we so arrogant to think we're better than the ancient Hebrews? Like, okay, we don't worry about, you know, what happens if our cow gets loose and gorges somebody, unless you're a cattle farmer. Um, But most of the world ain't dealing with that. But why was that law in place? Because it talked about love. How are we to love and respect and take care of our neighbor? Okay, so for me today, what does that look like? Sure. Absolutely. And kind of going to our our next series here, just to get things wrapped up. We've already talked a little bit about temptation. Mm Mm-hmm. But the next point we've got here, this next falsehood, is that entirely sanctified people do not face temptation. I'm just going to add one thing here quickly since we've already talked about this. Mm -hmm. And if anyone wants to respond to, we can, but we'll get moving along. One of the problems we have in our modern world is we feel like we're not deceived or we're not tempted unless we feel like we're deceived and tempted. But one of the great scams of evil is that you generally don't know that you're deceived and you generally don't know that you're tempted. We know throughout the early church, people were tempted to recant all the time. That doesn't mean that they legitimately felt they were tempted, but I mean, that's like the whole deal. You beat somebody and drag them into court. You're, you're tempting them to, to give up their faith. Being tempted does not mean that you consented to be tempted. There's a lot of stuff that may tempt you and you hate the temptation. You may not like it. We, we shouldn't abide by this notion that I'm only deceived if I feel like I'm deceived or I'm only tempted if I think I'm tempted. I mean, people get scammed by stuff all the time and don't even realize it. So that's just mm. all I've got there. And if anyone wants to add to it, they can. We feel good. All right, let's get on to the next one here that says holiness and entire sanctification are synonymous. Now, I've already used these as synonyms today, and you're <laughs> going to have a hard time talking about anything if you don't at some time use these as synonyms to a degree. But there are distinctions to be made. Yes. You know, God's state of holiness is, is much bigger than just how he might transform one person here or there. The entire sanctification process that we have in our lives, obviously, that may be something which is very personal to us. It's going to take us towards a particular goal. But as Amanda said earlier, you know, some of us may have skills and graces in one area. Some of us may have it in another area. Some of us have different battles we have to fight than others. It's going to look different between people, but the love is the same. Mm. The kingdom of God is the same. So any other thoughts on that before we excel Well, along? and I think that's the thing where, again, if we're reducing entire sanctification simply to a second definite work of grace, that's where I'm going to get really in trouble with some people, um, then we're going to find entire sanctification to be insignificant. And it cannot be synonymous with holiness. But if it is, 
Entire sanctification can be a response and that continual journey in holiness. And in that sense, they can be synonymous. Yeah. And, and so I think that that's where also, yes, because we are finite creatures using finite words, and we come to this with a, over 100 years of tradition and history that has impacted our language. Um, and there's even a list in our manual. Like, we had to list out all the other names, like holiness, entire sanctification, uh, heart purity, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what's the other one? The ba- No, I'm sorry, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have all this language for it, and yet there's a reason why we have so many words, because they do have slight nuances and changes and emphasis in them. And so... I just, I think it is, it's complicated. It hurts our heads sometimes. And you know what? If you use holiness instead of entire sanctification or you conflate the two or mix them up, you're not going to hell. It's okay. We've already discussed that. Yep. Um, maybe, I don't know. Mike's raising his hand. He might object <laughs> to me. But but it is. It, again, if the, if the goal is love, then we find love starts, holiness starts before entire sanctification, before salvation. Holiness starts because it is God. God is holy. Yep. You know, schisms in the church have happened over language and, <laughs> yes. and things of that nature. But, um, you know, when we look at the word sanctification, it is being made holy. And so that if you look all the way back to the root word, so that the root going back in the, in the Greek to, to, you know, the hagias. Uh, uh, but what I want to look at here is holiness and, and the process of being made holy. And, you know, there will be a, a lot of com- conversations, or more so in the past they are now, about that, that crisis moment. In other words, was there a moment when sin ceased to exist, that sin stopped, that you were saved? And and you can reach back. Some people can reach back to that moment. And sometimes for some, that moment is the moment they accepted Christ, much like we talked about with the Eastern thought, that you can't separate the two, that if you're going to give yourself to God and be saved, then you're going to immediately follow under the household rules of God and uh, not just a legalism, but also that principle that I was talking about. Uh, But, you know, this whole understanding of belonging to God, um, this this sanctification, and even though we can often go back to a crisis moment, we still must realize that God is saving us past, present, and future. That this Mm -hmm. being made holy it is process, and though we can reach back to a moment and, and maybe that crisis moment, we still can continue to grow in our relationship. The last falsehood we have here is that it is impossible to live up to the expectations of the sanctified life. And this is just utterly false, and, and it's built on just false premises galore. It's it, a heap of false well, premises are, are up under this. It's not just, what is that um, SpongeBob meme? It's not just everyday stupid. It's, uh, it's advanced. It's advanced. This, this is, is not this just advanced. false. This is advanced, advanced false. false. And, and it's simply, you look throughout the Old Testament, God uses people despite themselves all the time. The whole story of Jonah is somebody being used <laughs> despite his own failures. Peter, as I already said earlier, Peter, when Peter's on his A game, he, he, you want him on your team. Mm-hmm. When he's on his B game, he's kind of actually on his F game. He really doesn't <laughs> have any in-between. He's either really good or really bad. But you know what? And even after Pentecost. Even after Pentecost, he's like that, yeah. But Which is the point here, because mm. Christ still chose him to be the, the worldly figure who stepped into this role of leadership, 
that was carrying the church in, in a direction with Christ, not against Christ, not in absence of Christ. Christ is in heaven, and Christ is there dwelling and living with them. He carries on in that stead. And if Peter can live up to that, <laughs> then I think we, we can understand that we truly can live the sanctified life. However, don't be confused. That doesn't mean that we're immediately at the time when Christ judges the living and the dead. It's not a snap of the finger. We're going to have to persevere. We're going to have to endure. Mm-hmm. We're not immediately in that utopia. We're not immediately in the new body. So don't be angry and say, well, you know, there's still suffering in the world. There's still temptation that creeps into my life. You're made to overcome. You're given time for an opportunity such as this to overcome. Pastor Mike? I think there's, when I look at this statement, there are two things that really jump out to me that's implying. One, it's implying that we can sanctify ourselves, that, mm-hmm. that it's something that we do. Well, you know, there is a response on our behalf, but it is the work of God. And so when we when we when we hear this statement, it, it, there's there's the other side of that that really jumps out to me, and that is that God's not strong enough to sanctify mm. us. Now that's that that is those are definitely wrong. And the question that I ask is God uh, strong enough and powerful enough to save and sanctify you for just a small moment? Can He save and sanctify you for two moments, three moments? And then, you know, you eventually you say, can he do it for a lifetime? Can he do it for an eternity? And the truth is, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. And let us worship and know and uh, love this God and serve this God. Amen. Amen. I think also this question asks us again, what is our goal? And if God's mm-hmm. goal was only to save us so we could go to heaven, then yeah, why would it matter if we could be sanctified in this life? Why would it matter what we do in this life? But if God has come to save us, if God, cre- again, if we're thinking with the beginning with the end in mind, or the end with the beginning in mind, if God created us physically to have bodies, and that we are not simply souls trapped in bodies, but we are whole beings created in the image of a loving and just God, then wouldn't it make sense if God would sacrifice God's only son that we are to be saved wholly, completely, all of us, and in this lifetime? I just, I think, yes, because we have given people impossible, we are, we have been the Pharisees that Jesus has looked at and said, you have made people worse sinners than, than when before they even heard the good news. Mm. And we, yeah. and he has also looked at them, the same group, and said, it's better if you just go ahead and tie a big old millstone around your neck and jump in the lake. Yeah. And we repent, O oh Lord. Amen. Because Amen. this is, that is not gospel. Gospel is that God loves us so much that we can love perfectly and completely. And yes, sometimes we make mistakes. Amen. And we still have the ability to choose to sin. But we can love now. Amen. Amen. Well, now that we've hit our moment of revival, <laughs> which is Preach always it, good. Preach it. Always good. Yeah. We're going to wrap up our episode today of Nazarene Open University with Kingdom of the Lagos with a little bit of adventure. All right. Just setting aside everything, we've wrapped up our main study. Let's have a little bit of fun, shall we? Okay. If we could, 
I've had fun earlier. <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. If we had an opportunity, you have an angel of the Lord come to you. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And whether you choose St. Michael, St. Gabriel, who have a very different endeavors. One of them slays the devil. The other or does in Revelation 13, though Jesus ultimately does. So the other is more of a messenger. But an angel of the Lord comes to you and says, for 12 hours, you get to witness some biblical scene. Mm. What would that scene be? And for practical purposes, we're going to set aside the death and resurrection, and we're going to set aside the installation of the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem, just because I think I think everybody would be in a bad shape if they did not immediately pick those things. But aside from those pivotal moments... We might lose what, our sanctification. Yeah. Yes. No. Not to lose our sanctification. Okay, I, I don't know. What scene would you like to witness? And you, you get up to 12 hours <laughs> witnessing 12 hours. the scene. Mm. Yeah. And who would like to go first? Pastor Mike, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, you know, there, the... the the greatest event in our Bible is obviously the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The second great event, I believe, is the crossing of the Red Sea and God uh, parting the waters and delivering uh, His people. And so I'm I'm going to go with parting of the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, however you want to, uh, you know, verbalize that. But yeah, I, I think it is that. So yeah. that's where I'm at. Yeah. And see, so if you get 12 hours. Depending mm-hmm. on where you start and begin that, you also get to see the temper tantrum after they get across the sea. <laughs> and people you get like to well, see the waters come back. You get to see the waters come back. Yeah, not get, too good for Pharaoh. Not too good. <laughs> um, all right, Pastor Amanda. Uh, I, I'm torn between a couple of them, but I think my top two, uh, as, as much as I would like to see something, a yeah, great cosmological miracle like, like what Pastor Mike said, um, I think I would like to see either, although this would include some great cosmological things, um, either Isaiah 6, where Isaiah receives his call, um, and uh, he looks and sees uh, God filling up the temple and the seraphs and the coal coming down uh, and the commissioning, really, of Isaiah. And then I think, though, the one that kind of also I would like to see, though, the one, the two I can't pick between, is I think I would like to see Esther. But specifically, not when she goes before the king, but when she is deciding. Yeah. When in in the quiet of her room mm. or her bedchambers, and Mordecai is talking to her, and then she has to make that transition from really being a person of safety, even if it is a false safety, um, to deciding. If I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. And I, I think that quiet moment of courage would be something I, I would like to see. <laughs> yeah. Well, to step into all this, and Mike is over there said like the resurrection and, and the the parting of the sea, like completely dismissing Genesis and then the <laughs> recreation of the new heaven, new earth. Not to beat up on that. But you look there at Esther. This was this was one of the ones I wanted to pick. Mm, sorry. <laughs> but and the reason is because this is the question for all really all men and women. You did not ask to be born. Mm. You know, paradise lost. Did I request thee maker from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee that from my darkness thou should promote me? You didn't ask to be made. There's terrible stuff around you. Mm. You can sit there and pretend like it'll all get better. It, it really won't, but you can pretend to yourself it will. In that scene with Esther, which, again, the whole book of Esther is vividly painted. It's one of the most descriptive books in Scripture from, like, start to finish. You feel like you can see all the characters and, like, have, like, a general layout of the palace. You get these ideas of these rooms and stuff. But to see that decision that says, you know what? I didn't ask to be here. I've been handed some talents. I could sit in my room and let them go to waste. I could bury it. 
But you mm. know what? If I perish, I perish. But I'm not going to pick that one. Um, I'm going to pick John chapter 9 with the blind man. Though I was also tempted to get Balaam and the talking donkey, that surprise. <laughs> I'm going for a different surprise, though. And that's with Balaam, or not Balaam, the blind man who's before this whole council. They've got this inquiry, this this big investigation to, you know, how is he blind? And now he sees. And they want so hard to get him to talk about sin. They want him to be talking about sin and Jesus being sinful. But eventually the man just eventually says, this I can tell you. Mm. I was blind and now I see. And just to see the look on their faces as they get enraged by this because they hate this man. Temper tantrum. The temper tantrum they throw. Mm-hmm. And and see, with this scene, you have a man who's unexpected, who rises up to the occasion, and then you have Jesus, God incarnate, watching one of his creature rise to the occasion of being the man he was made to be. You have other people who were officials who are throwing an absolute temper tantrum of the grossest proportions. And then God is over here watching it all. Just see that scene <laughs> would be pretty impressive. And on that note, we often think that like the... Hatred of authority that scripture talks about us from like rebellious teenagers and things of that sort. But it's not. The people that really hate authority are the people with doctors next to their name, the people who are the teachers of the law, the Mm. people who control all the institutions. They are the ones that actually hate the authority and the ones who create all the havoc. Mm. Because it's not their authority. And they also throw temper tantrums. And they throw some bad temper tantrums. Bad temper tantrums. All righty. All right. Well, we made it through all 10. We did. And in the lesson plan, it said it should have taken 60 minutes. How long did we take? Um, I'm going to guess it's 70 minutes. 70 minutes. minutes. 109. 109. So we're right there. And on that note, let us close by saying God love you and have a blessed day. Thank you for joining us again. This is Kingdom of the Logos. We'll catch you next time.